Hey y'all, this is Connie Morgan with the Free Black Thought Podcast. Today the podcast features someone known as a dad, architect, writer, entrepreneur, co-founder of FBT, and all the black man he needs to be, Michael David Cobb Bowen, who is the embodiment of what it means to march to the beat of your own drum. In this episode, he and I walk down his unique path of being raised by black nationalists, only to find himself in the Republican Party, and eventually throwing that out too to land on a stoic identity. It was so fun, even for me, to get to know this gent better. Please welcome to the show, Michael D.C. Bowen. And remember, there is no such thing as the Black perspective, just Black people with perspectives. You're listening to the Free Black Thought Podcast. Mike, hello. Thank you for coming on the Free Black Thought Podcast, which sounds a little weird for me to say since you are a founding a founder of Free Black Thought and a board member of Free Black Thought. So it's like I'm welcoming you into your own home, (laughs) but so excited to have you on and have you as part of this initial round of our, our first podcast series. We're launching a podcast. It's super exciting. Before we get into deep topics, though, I want to ask you a little bit about your name. So two things. One, you're, you're Michael, but you go by Mike. Are you someone, I had a friend, same thing, right? He's Michael. He went by Mike. Mm-hmm. Never, he introduced himself as Mike. He never corrected people, but he told me after knowing him for two years, he's like, I actually hate the name Mike. I wish everyone would call me Michael. When you're Michael, you are Mike. There's nothing you can do about it. So I just gave in. Is that you or do you like being called Mike? No, no, no. I'm very specific about under which conditions people call me Mike or Michael. When I use my full name, it's it's like uh, something, you know, my father calls me my full name and I know I'm in trouble. I mean, so so now you have my full attention. It's like, Michael David Cobb Bowen, get in here this minute. Right. And then I know I have to have a full accounting of everything I've done. <laughs> so my mind races. At work, I like to be Mike Bowen because it's quick, it's snappy, uh, and and I like to be colloquial at work. But it's it's very weird and I notice these things all the time, uh, how young people call me Mr. Michael. And I don't, <laughs> I don't even understand why they don't call people by their last names. I mean, everybody gets a pronoun, but can you call me Mr. <laughs> Bowen, please? Um, so it's, it, it is an interesting thing. I, I do go down those roads. Uh, but yeah, I'm Michael David Cobb Bowen. And so why do you have four names instead of the typical three? It's, um, it's because I had an uncle, uh, David Cobb, and uh, he had a nickname. I think it was Dida. And uh, he was one of those fancy individuals. And uh, interestingly enough, he, he committed suicide uh, oh. right about the time that I was born. So I think uh, it was my destiny to, to uh, take on a little bit of his name. And, and since that, uh, you know, we all get middle names every one of our children and mostly uh they are a not after a relative but their last name mm. so we have Cobbs, we have curtises we have thomases we have fouches and so everybody uh the the the, the first born kids my son is as christopher michael curtis and then uh, my grandfather is is raymond curtis so and we have a couple, the seconds, the third, mm-hmm. and we actually have, uh, yeah, I, I do. We we do have a tray, who's oh, yeah? the third, 
Yeah. Nice. So so we're all rather serious about that. My my daughter's middle name, uh, my oldest daughter, is Alexandria or Alexandra, and that's after someone we found in our family tree who was a Civil War soldier mm. from the Massachusetts 54th, actually. Wow. Uh, so and and she's she's very much like that. She's mm-hmm. she's an interesting person. So yeah, we do take our names very seriously here. Yeah, I'm the same way. I mean, I have an old lady name. I'm Con- I'm Connie, but my name is Constance, and I'm named after my grandmother. And a lot of young people don't even know that a lot of millennials and younger don't even know that Connie's short for Constance. I can't tell you how many people are shocked when they find out that my name is Constance. They've never heard it before in their life. People wow. my age, which wow. is weird, right? Old- older generations are like everybody knew. Oh, yeah, it. sure, right. Constance. I've had I've shown up to hotels and you know, they say, what's your name? And I say, Connie Morgan. And they're like, sorry, you don't have a reservation. And then they'll be like, wait, are you Constance? Yes, <laughs> I'm Constance. That would never happen to a Mike, a Mike, Michael or a Dave. Well, David. It depends on what country you're trying to enter. I've actually had that happen to me where I had Mike on my boarding pass and mm-hmm. Michael on my passport. And they're oh. like, no, no, no. You yeah. would have to make an exception for you. Really strange. Well, at least that was in another country and not and not America. But the other thing is Connie's are mostly if there's if they are younger Connie's, they're all Asian. Mm. Now it's a very common name for first generation kids are named Connie after. Is it Connie Chung or something like? Yeah, yeah. Connie Chung was here in LA. Right. So there was actually an article in the New York Times last month about all these young Asian Connie's. So I never look how people expect me to look. They just meet me online or on the phone <laughs> or something like that. I've been told my whole life, like, I did not expect you right. to look. They either think I'm Asian or white mm-hmm. almost every all the time. Even though Constance was actually like a fairly common name for, for black women as well in the older generation. So anyways, major sidetrack. All that to say, names <laughs> are fascinating to me. And I didn't know that. I didn't know that about you. I didn't know how your names work, even though I've known you for a while now. So glad to clear that up but you do all the things you're a family man you're a tech guy you're a writer you're an entrepreneur you're obviously a thinker can you give us a little backstory on how you got to where you are today starting off with your childhood where did you grow up siblings that kind of thing uh it all started in uh 1857 (laughs) with my great grandfather (laughs) no my my great grandfather uh on my father's side uh, was charles sparrow bowen and he was a sharecropper in New Bern, North Carolina. And he got tired of that life and he moved up to Connecticut. He was good with horses. And so he became a groom and a, a horse race trainer. So oh, wow. he, he hung out with the horsey set up in, in Connecticut. He died somewhere uh, around the time of the flu pandemic, 1918. Uh, and then mm-hmm. my grandfather was born shortly before that. He was an orphan. Uh, so we oh. kind of had to start from ground zero on that side of the family. Then, uh, so he grew up with the Millers and he had brothers and half brothers. The Millers, that's just a family that took him in or? Yes. Okay. Yes. And so, so the Bowens and the Millers are close. So when we have a reunion, it's Bowen Miller Cobb uh, on that side of the family. And then the Cobbs, an illustrious bunch, my grandmother, uh, the man, my grandfather married was Lucille, and they got married during the Depression. She beat polio. She smoked three packs of cigarettes <laughs> a day. 
She wore the pillbox hat and the mm -hmm. circle pin. She was a proper lady. Everybody called her Miss Madam, and she was a fearsome woman. Mm -hmm. she, was, she was just like one of those women that you just don't cross. Very powerful individual. We were all scared of her. <laughs> so my dad was born in New Haven, Connecticut uh, in the 30s. And then he uh, married my mother, was from New Orleans. So my mother is one of the New Orleans Creoles uh, in the city. That side of the family, I can actually trace all the way back to Marie Laveau. So I am a descendant of the voodoo priestess Marie Laveau from New Orleans. And so we have Boncas, Doliol, uh, Fouches, a bunch of folks. That side of the family uh, was never enslaved. Uh, mm. We were from St. Lucia and France before that. Extraordinarily beautiful women on that side of the family. Uh, even Did though you just they... insult the other side of your family? <laughs> well, I guess my dad's side is the man's side of the family. Mm. And my mother's side is the woman's side of the family. Okay. Uh, so, so that's that's definitely the case. Uh, so I have uh, an extraordinary range of uh, uncles and cousins. Uh, so I've always been part of a big family. I was the oldest of five kids. Uh, my dad was in the Marine Corps, uh, so I was born in Oceanside, California, because he was at Camp Pendleton. Both of my parents uh, got into social work. They both had degrees in sociology, even from. Uh, uh, UConn and and my mother from Dillard. So they came to Los Angeles in the early 60s to work for the Department of Social Services, basically mm. welfare. Okay. And so they were kind of ideal parents helping other parents be good parents. So I had the parent parents, you know. My dad was a radical. He was a black nationalist. He founded the Institute for Black Studies in Los Angeles in 1966. He was in correspondence with a great number of significant people of, of the period. He was kind of uh, uh, what you would consider an original community organizer. Mm. Uh, so the Institute for Black Studies was a cultural nationalist, not a militant nationalist. Uh, but he was a separatist. He thought we should take over Alabama and Mississippi and Georgia Mm. Uh, that black people should have some states uh, because the way he saw things, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't going well. And uh, I think in the back of his head as a Marine, he said, you know, there's too many of us who actually now have been through World War II and have military training. So you better not cross us. Uh, and I think the idea of that power frightened him a bit. Uh, mm -hmm. he, he doesn't like guns to this day, mm. uh, even though he was a marksman. Okay. Uh, so it was like, we have to have a culture along with this. We can't just have the anger. We have to be thinking our way forward if we're going to be a black nation. Was your mom, was your mom in lockstep with them or did they have disagreements? Yes, they, they were. Okay. They were, they were both a bit naive and carried away with the movement. But they were both also very serious. It, 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 it needs to be said also that my, my uncle on my mother's side was an original director in the Peace Corps. And so that side of the family spoke French, went to UN schools, spent a lot of time in West Africa. Uh, my uncle actually died over in West Africa. And so there was already some of our family 
during the 60s who were living in, in Africa. I learned Swahili. I learned how to speak Swahili uh, and French. And there was some expectation that if it came down to that, you know, we were going to get our shots and we were going to go. I think there was a turning point, uh, the way I like to tell it. It's well known that here in Southern California, a city called Torrance had restrictive covenants on the real estate, and it kind of escaped through the, the, the cracks of civil rights law. And so there were great protests against restrictive covenants here in Los Angeles. And my mother was pregnant, I think, for my my, my middle brother and almost got hit with a brick. So you can imagine you're marching for equality and somebody pitches a brick at a pregnant woman. Um, So I grew up in this household uh, where my dad was a community organizer. We had the Redwood Theater Group. We had a poetry group. We had the children's workshop uh, and we had a writer's workshop. And so we had about a dozen people who were actively involved in the activities of the Institute. Uh, We got to know pretty much everybody in the movement around here. Uh, I tell the story that I was in the first Kwanzaa. So I grew up celebrating Kwanzaa, gave up Christmas for several years Mm -hmm. uh, to to be part of the Nguzo Saba. And I knew all of that stuff. I was in the pageant for the first Kwanzaa. And I held the, the Z because I was the only kid who could who could pronounce uh, Chagalia? Oh, wow. <laughs> which is self-determination, which has always been a part of, 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 of my thing. Uh, and, and my dad hung out with um, Dr. Alfred Lagan, who owned the, the first and largest black bookstore in Los Angeles. Mm. And he was a kind of uh, gnostic, mystic uh, philosopher. Uh, so I think some of that rubbed off on me. But my folks went on. My dad uh, ultimately uh, joined the uh, the county health department and was part of the team that got Martin Luther King Hospital and the Drew School uh, of Medicine built in South Los Angeles. Uh, my mother became a, a warden. Um, she was with the the court when folks go to um, parents go to jail and their kids become wards of the state. She ran. Uh, part of that program at a place called McLaren Hall, uh, east of Los Angeles. Uh, so she was a court officer. And they were just great parents. There's five of us kids. I was the oldest, four boys, and and my baby sister. We've always had a very strong family. And uh, I was the adventurous one. I was the one that goes first. And uh, I was I was smarter than the average bear. <laughs> so I had a big ego. I was a teacher's pet, but I was also very adventurous. Me and my brothers pretty much did everything the Three Stooges did. <laughs> so so we were out there with the, the trash can tops having rock fights. Yeah. Now Gen X claims all of that, drinking from the water hose and coming in. But I was a big brother in the neighborhood. We didn't have gangs. You had families that you had to deal with. And kind of like that... Uh, was it a, it was a black neighborhood? Yes, yes. Yeah. It was predominantly black. This was West Adams, uh, a very nice middle-class residential neighborhood, uh, kind of the center of black Los Angeles at that time. 
Crenshaw Boulevard was the main drag, as we used to call it. I grew up up from freedom. Uh, we had we had everything. You know, the, the old story, we didn't know how poor we were. But after a while, you know, I I got bored with my old neighborhood. I went to different places. I went to Catholic school. I, I went to a Jesuit prep school. Were for, your parents Catholic? What was their religious philosophy? They were nothing. I mean, my, my dad grew up as an Episcopalian. You know, his, his dad was a deacon at St. Luke's in, in New Haven. And he knew, my grandfather knew like every black minister in the Episcopal Church in New England. Yeah. It was just like he, he was that kind of Shriner, Elk, Mason. Mm-hmm. You know, he was in all the clubs and, and also with the church as well. And uh, my mother was a, a, a Catholic from, from New Orleans. And there were a lot of Creole Catholics at the time. But, you know, when they both got radicalized and, and, and were doing the black nationalist thing, I never went to church. I never mm-hmm. heard the word Jesus until I was like eight or nine years old. Oh, wow. And, and that was when my, my youngest brother was born and he had spinal meningitis. He completely confused the doctors. You know, we don't know why he has it. And then suddenly he was cured. And we don't know why he was cured. Uh, hmm. So, of course, my mother saw that as a miracle. Yeah. And uh, she, she, she got back into the evangelistic tradition. She didn't. Oh. She didn't go back to Catholicism. Wow. Uh, okay, that's interesting. So she became she she became an evangelical Christian, and she's gone through several different you know um, sects of, of 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 religion. She was originally with um, the Foursquare, Foursquare Church. So I went to West Adams Foursquare. I went to Avalon Zion. Uh, I learned I, I learned all the you know Bible stories. I got all the gold stars, and uh, I, I sung in the gospel choir. Eventually, I decided um, to go Episcopalian. So I was confirmed when I was uh, 15 or 16 years old uh, at St. John's Episcopal Church in, in Los Angeles. When your mom oh. kind of went through this personal revival kind of journey, mm-hmm. were, were her political views changing, or was she still a black nationalist? How did that influence? I think she, she toned that down. A bit. My mother is, and she's still around. Both my parents are still around. She, she's remarkable in that. I mean, she wanted more children. She wanted to be the queen. She, uh, I mean, that's all I can think of. She just like, I want to be the queen. I mm-hmm. want, you know, all my children to do this. And and we had this very clean, disciplined, orderly house. And she just loved to point us out to the things that we were going to do, damn it. Uh, <laughs> so, and and I think, you know, it helps, again, because both of them were dealing with poor families on welfare. And it was their job as social workers to get them, you know, what they needed uh, from the county of Los Angeles. And, and the whole black nationalist thing was in the background. That was their side. That mm. was their side gig. But I think there was no appeal to God in in my early life. It was all about what the movement could do. And we understood, well, I, I came to understand that that was partly Marxist and that a lot of people had a lot of ideas for 
the revol- the revolution. And my father was a part of the Watts Poets. So I actually have a copy of the first edition of the Watts Poets Book of Poetry with Stanley Crouch and and um and and that gang. Uh I, I'm blanking on the other names, uh, but but that were well known. So you could say that the cultural nationalists were also cultural Marxists, and there was a conflict. On the other hand, there were many churches in Los Angeles County that were more radical than others. Mm-hmm. So there was a big conflict, of course, between those who wanted to be continued to be called Negro and those that wanted to be called Black like the African Methodist Episcopal were not going to change themselves to the black Methodist Episcopal. And the right. church of God in Christ was not going to say we're, they're going to say we're Negroes and we don't want to have anything to do with this black revolutionary stuff. And so in over the course of his networking, you know, we found which ministers were amenable to our revolutionary ideas and which were not, but we were, we were there with the African garb. We wore dashikis. I was dressed up like I was a little kid from Ashante Village in Ghana. I still have the book around here somewhere. It's called Kwaku, A Boy of Ghana. I'm sure I have the used book somewhere on one of these shelves. But, uh, yeah, I dressed I dressed in the traditional garb, and and I spoke, you know, about Ghana, Asante Sana, and Jema Asante Sana. And my dad would say, Njo! And that means come here. So when when he wanted to call us all to do something, you know, it was casually spoken some Swahili around the house. But we were not. Um, we didn't sing gospel songs at home, and I mm. think that split my parents up. Uh, eventually, they they divorced after about twenty two years. Wow. Um, but uh, they definitely went their own religious directions, and so. Wow. I've had a, a variety of religious upbringings, some at home and some through the different schools and, and some, some through, you know, friendships. Right. So did, did something, was there some event or moment that sort of, quote, radicalized your parents or was it just the movement was big at the time and they just kind of got swept up in it? I don't know. I think part of it was just the idea of revolution was in the air. My parents were generally fearless. Uh, you know, my uncle Bruce worked for the Kennedy administration uh, and he, he joined the Air Force when he was like 16 to get in. My, my aunt, Bruce's um, wife, was beautiful enough to be a model uh, in, in New Orleans. She was one of the first uh, black stewardesses that uh, any major airline hired. Oh, wow. I believe she was originally with TWA. We were just kind of accustomed to just going. We were just a balls out family. My father is on record. He had, you know, wrote letters to Ralph Bunch in the UN uh, to Dr. King. And he's just said, I'm convinced we're not going to be totally free here. There's, there's a new Pan-African movement out there. We speak with leaders in West Africa because the Peace Corps has got that connection. And then we're making connection with the people who invented Kwanzaa. So it's going to be mighty changes around here. And if we don't get what we want, that's it. 
So I just I just think they were they were out there being bold. Uh, my dad wrote and was published in the radical magazines, uh, Freedom Ways, Liberator magazine. Uh, he had ongoing conversations with the local newspapers, the Sentinel, the black newspapers that were here and 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 elsewhere. Uh, and and they met with movement people here and on the East Coast as well. So you say that he said, you know, we're not going to be free here. But so far, you actually haven't really told me about any kind of major racial strife that you experienced. Maybe they've just been leaving that part out. So far, your life sounds pretty great. What what yeah. was he? What did he mean by that? Where where were we all not free? He used to have a slogan: "Law, liberty, love, and land." I guess he would kind of be the equivalent of these people who call themselves sovereign citizens today. Mm. We're just like whatever it is. If black people are not getting absolute equality everywhere, then we're just going to go our own way. Okay. And I kind of inherit. I inherited that as a kid. And it seemed, you know, young, gifted, and in black. They're singing a song about kids like me. And we sung the Black National Anthem. And we were in touch with local politicians. Uh, and my father was one of those people who said, you know, you better hire me in a high position in this city government or, you know, I know all these people. There's, there's always that, that threat. And so he became a, a special assistant to the director of health services for, the, the, for Los Angeles County. So he worked directly for the guy who ran the county, Los Angeles County Health Department, along with a lot of people, were able to pass the civil servant exam. They were networking like crazy. So you can imagine there's this part of the Black American community who had always been respected within their own communities, but they wouldn't, they couldn't get these government positions. And so when it finally happened, when the barrier was cracked, my father helped found an organization called the Black Employees Organization. So it says, if you want to get work in the county or the city of Los Angeles or in the state of California, we have the networking and we're going to get you in. There's that kind of soft power that he helped develop. Uh, he was getting all kinds of plaques and recognition for that. Um, as an example, when Maxine Waters got elected to the state assembly, I was the DJ for her reception. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. When, we, when, when Tom Bradley ran for mayor, we contributed. We had the you know, Tom Bradley sign on our tree in front of our house. Uh, I've met David Cunningham, Diane Watson, uh, just a lot of folks who were significant in politics in California. My aunt lived around the corner from Jess Unruh, and he was, I believe, the, the controller of the state of California. And there were a lot of white folks who were involved in the movement as well. There were lots of what now we call allies. Mm -hmm. And there were people who knew that there were black, talented people who could make a difference. And so I think my father was part of that first wave of the integration that showed, oh, we can do this stuff. But also we had our own thing too. For example, 
there was a journalist uh, named Louis Lomax. And Louis Lomax had a TV show on uh, Channel 5, KTLA, here in Los Angeles. And so my father and I were interviewed on that show when I was a kid. I was like, I don't know, eight or nine or 10 years old. <laughs> and he would talk about like, we're going to get back with the South Africans and we're going to break apartheid and we're going to be a force to reckon with in, in the world. And Pan-Africanism uh, Pan had not died yet. Uh, and so there was a lot of hope for that. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of hopes for, you know, a global revolution. Uh, and it was, it, was, it was crazy times. And at first, at least, I think you become a young man you were following in your in your dad's footsteps, right? You identified yeah. as a black nationalist, young black and yeah. gifted, talented tenth. I guess how thought out were your ideas at that point? Was it just mm -hmm. like carrying the torch for my dad? What was mm -hmm. sort of your evolution from there on? After my mother pulled back that brick, maybe more significant in my mind than than in hers. Uh, and then we had five kids. And, you know, at some point they believe maybe the FBI is listening to our telephone and maybe some of these more radical people, like my father didn't want to be associated with uh, Ron Karenga. Uh, they, you know, he said his ego was too big. And then Karenga was competing with the Black Panthers uh, for recognition. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and there were people who wanted to politicized the, the the black gangs in Los Angeles and elsewhere. And so there was a militant arm in this uh, that I think we pulled back from. Mm -hmm. And there was never any... And that was when you were, that was still when you were a kid? Or yeah, this is as a young... Yeah, right. still okay. when I was a kid. Uh, um, I think at some point when he got on the committee uh, and the leadership with the health department, to build King Hospital, he says, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is not going to be, and, and that's different, I think, definitely from the Watts riots. I mean, the riots were here. The, there was that precedent, and, and, and they lived through that, and they lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis, and they lived through the race riots where there were like hundreds of riots every hot summer, uh, and they witnessed what, what went down in Detroit. And so... I think they wisely pulled back from the brink. They said, you know, wait a minute. I've been in the Marine Corps. I know what happens if the National Guard troops get out. And if what happened at the, the, the Democratic Convention in 1968, even just with the white Democrats, are cracking heads, you know, maybe we don't want to do that. And, and we were never instructed as kids to hate white people or to fear white people or to even fundamentally distrust them. It was just, we are not going to be dependent on them. So the mm -hmm. idea of, of black consciousness was very clear to me, which is we're not going to be Negroes anymore. We are not going to, for our own self-esteem, compare ourselves to white people. We compare ourselves to ourselves. This family does this, that family does that. My father is, you know, this guy. We take kids from the neighborhood up to the mountains. If they're not reading at grade level, we help them do that. And so it was really about self-determination. And it was really about 
the possibilities of, you know, 20 million Negroes becoming something other than just pets or, you know, helpmates or something like that. So your your dad was sort of softening his approach a little bit as you were becoming an adult. And so that influenced yeah. you. But then... At some point, I think you correct me, please, if I'm wrong, you were you identified as a black nationalist and then Mm -hmm. you sort of transitioned to I'm a progressive. Is that correct? Yeah, I think you you could say that Uh, I still definitely thought I was talented 10th and that became more solidified. What did that mean? What did that mean to you? I am in the talented 10th. Everybody, I think. Well, maybe not everybody, but most people are familiar with the phrase. But what did that mean to you? I think it happened gradually over over the 70s so so uh 74 i was in the eighth grade i was still i was at the time i was fascinated with science fascinated with nuclear energy i was fascinated uh you know with that i was sure i was going to be an astronaut you know my dad taught me some basic electronics we could i could fix the tubes in the tv my personal attitude as a kid was Dad, if all these people actually knew who they who we are, they would love us like everybody else loves us. And I think by the time, by 1976, by the bicentennial, I think we were just kind of done with the whole radical uh, attitude. Okay. By that time, I had never gone to school with white kids until I was 14, 13 or 14 years old. And so I went to... Um, a, a public junior high for summer school in Pacific Palisades, which is like one of the wealthiest you know communities here in Los Angeles. And I met a lot of white kids whose parents were, were movie stars. And uh, I, I, I met a guy who knew Flip Wilson's daughter. He says, I'm going to hook you up with Flip Wilson's daughter. They were surfer dudes. I met a kid who was Donald O'Connor, the actor's, a son and we became best friends. Wow. And so I was getting along with these white kids and it was it was interesting and fun. I was kind of shocked because a lot of them had braces and I said, "What's that?" You know, it's just all oh, to to make my teeth straight. I says, "Really?" When they told me how much they cost, I was like, "They pay more for these braces than my parents paid for their house." <laughs> like their their monthly orthodontist bill is more than my dad's mortgage payment. Yeah. And I can't believe that these kids, feeling very self-conscious about themselves, oh, I got railroad tracks in my mouth. And some of them had the braces and the rubber bands oh, yeah. and everything. And I'm like, oh, my God. They do. They spend that much mo- money to smile and look good. You know, I, I, I just I couldn't believe how wealthy they were or how, how much they appeared. But, you know, they were kids. And there were some of those kids who were very entitled and they got away with murder and they had their own little kind of mafia. So their kids are saying, okay, you want to get a hall pass for the whole day or you want to get excused for being late? I know somebody who works in the, in the vice president's uh, in the vice principal's office and we can get you through that. Hmm. So it was first time I saw kids disrespect teachers that just knew that they could get away with it. Mm -hmm. Rich kids. I was like, it was amazing. Uh, so I was going to try to go to Palisades High School, uh, which is the high school that my sister-in-law went to, and 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 most famously, um, 
Uh, I'll remember his name later, but he's okay. a famous black actor. He big guy played football, has a, a kind of a dead eye, and um, Forrest, Forrest, Forrest Whitaker. Forrest Whitaker. <laughs> yeah, we're we're the same age. We would have been in at the same high school, and I knew a lot of kids who went to that high school again because I went to middle school for that summer. So then I get accepted into this ritzy private prep school, and so that's the second group of rich white kids that I, that I, I get to know. And it took me a semester or two to fit in. And then I fit in. Yeah. And then I went to summer camp uh, with the Episcopal church. And that was down a hundred miles away from home. And there's a, there's a third group of white kids. So between the time I'm 13 and I'm 15, I've met three or four different cliques of white kids. And I was like, okay, I can get along with all these folks. And there's no reason, you know, we're not doing that black nationalist thing anymore. We're not doing Kwanzaa anymore. My dad's not writing these radical poems anymore. Uh, we're kind of like a normal middle class family. But I'm also among the elite black kids in Los Angeles. So I'm going to Catholic school with black kids whose parents are actors, doctors, lawyers, wealthy folks. You know, kids who were there's there was a kid who was driving a convertible sports car, a Sunbeam to school, you know, as a kid, brand new convertible. What? What? So it was it was OK. I'm I'm an elite here. This is at the elite. High you realize school. that as a kid, you I were like, that. I'm a part of the elite. Yeah, I'm a part of the elite. The buildings at my high school were named after the family who, you know, Farmer John, you know, Farmer John hot links and, and, and hot dogs, bacon. They went to this high school. The guys who own the local uh, supermarket chain, Vons, which is, I think it's part of Safeway or they bought Safeway. They went there. And so I'm like, okay, I'm in. And now I'm competing with the sharpest kids of, of, of Los Angeles. And there was a kind of pride, kind of understated snobbery that you're kind of on the inside. And they're like, oh, you know, 99% of our graduates go to four-year institutions. And, you know, I took my standardized tests. I got I, I, I was national merit semifinalist, not a national merit finalist, but a semifinalist. And then they had a separate category for the black kids, which was national achievement. So I was a national achievement finalist. I start getting all this recruitment stuff from the colleges. So I'm like feeling, yeah, I'm an elite and I'm going to figure out how America actually works. And I always just said, now I understand it's not like a system. There are people behind that. All right. Mm -hmm. So like there was a kid in, in, in our class uh, named O'Melveny. And the biggest, most powerful law firm in Los Angeles is O'Melveny and Myers. There was one of um, the Crosby's kids was at our school. And then I was meeting kids who were really smart, smarter than me, uh, which was kind of new for me to get, <laughs> get used to. And I'm feeling kind of at home. It's also a Jesuit Catholic school. So there's, you know, you have to be educated in their tradition and the jesuits of course are the snobs among all the catholics right 
So it, it was a lot to take in, but it was really changing um, my idea of what I was capable of. I was always a competitive, competitive kid. So, so after that became, you know, the forge of me and, and that began my journey. You weren't even an adult, an adult yet. And you were already thinking about things bigger than, than most people do at that age. Even just saying like, I'm going to figure out how America really works as a young person. What, so you went to college right away after high school? I was accepted into the electrical engineering program at USC, the university. I was going to be a Trojan. That's all I cared about. I had also skipped grades. Oh, so I was 15 years old in January. No, 16 years old in January, where I got early decision from USC's electrical engineering program. So you couldn't tell me shit. <laughs> I don't know if I would have liked you, Mike, much in high no, school. <laughs> I, was, I was not a likable person. I was a smart ass. I was shorter than everybody. I was a year younger than everybody in my class. I I hung around everybody. I, I kind of, I hung out with the pinball clique. I hung out with the soccer clique. I was on the swim team because I was a springboard diver. And it was the strangest thing because all of the things that I was good at, this school had none of it. I was good oh. at wrestling. They had no wrestling team. I was good at music. They had no band. Oh, wow. I, I was good at um, one more thing, and I forgot what it was, and they didn't have that either. So, oh, gymnastics. I could tumble. That makes sense. You were a diver. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they didn't have that. So the closest thing to a gymnastics team was, was the diving team. And so I became the diver and I, I got four year varsity. And so I, I, I managed to fit in. Uh, but yeah, you couldn't tell me Jack. <laughs> so, so then you went off to college as a, as a young guy. I mean, you're pretty young to be, to yeah. be going right. What was your view? What was your philosophy or kind of your ideology in college? I dropped out. So I was at USC for one semester and my parents were did not have a hardship case for scholarship money. And I did not go for straight A's. I wanted to be well-rounded. I wanted to do athletics and after schools. So I, I got out. I finished all my requirements, like the semester before. And then I had three free periods and three classes and I got D's in those classes. So it took me below a 3.0. Yep. And so it was like, you're not going to get an academic scholarship. You're not going to get a hardship scholarship. Oh, come on, dad, just bounce up the house. Take a second mortgage. He says, you have three younger brothers and a younger sister. You already went to private school. You can either join ROTC or you can get a job. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh. <laughs> So that was that was the hardest thing that ever happened in my life. Um, so I got a job, and I ended up working at a, a, a place that's like Costco, and I sold radios, I sold stereo. It's crazy when I, I I would always like think about it. How many of these schools I rejected their offers because I just wanted to go to USC. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. all I cared about. I was yeah. just like, 
I went to the my got my first choice. I was accepted to all three of my choices, blah blah, and then uh, I, I I got no choice. So now I had to improvise. I had to work. I had to figure things out. I was a union. I joined the union, and we went on strike, and I got strike pay, which was like thirty dollars a week. I learned how the other side lives, and it was really a trip to go from this elite, you know, high school uh, to being the favored son to now I'm working in a warehouse with ex-Vietnam vets and lifting boxes for a living. Yeah, that was probably actually, well, what do you think? Was that one of the best experiences that you had? It was the best thing, it yeah. was the best thing for me. In terms of I molding you. I believe that I could make friends with these guys and I made friends immediately. It mm. was just like, and it was, I knew, then I recognized the difference between my ambition and other people's ambitions. And I was just very ambitious and I felt that I was entitled to that ambition. And the, these kids were humorous and funny and ethical and honest and hardworking. And I was like, there's no reason why you guys can't do it. And they just, they just didn't envision themselves that way. Mm. You know, we were best pals and it was great. And it was, it was a, a, a very important lesson for me in my life. I'm 19 years old. It was. Were your political views changing then as a result of this, or were you still kind of seeing black I, society the same way as you saw it before? It was, it was weird because now I was like, I know what it's like to be on the inside track and this is when the talented tenth stuff began at first to disintegrate, but it was more like, all right, I can hang out with all these people, and they're not all ghetto people. And so that was the year that Stevie Wonder came out with Hotter Than July, and he's wearing braids. And I would never think about wearing cornrows or, or braids or anything like that, other than just to get a blowout on my afro. And then I did that. I got a jerry curl. <laughs> I bought a motorcycle. So I went from being this preppy kid to being just my ordinary party kid. And then I started DJing. I did that stuff. And so it was it was time for me to curse and, and smoke and, and have a good time. And then I, I found myself at this party. And I'm going to dance with this girl. And she went to UC Santa Barbara, so she was on break. And she said, so what, what college do you go to? I said, I work at Fedco. I'm a union man. And she turned her back on me Ooh. right there. And I was stunned. My buddies were there, too. So all my buddies that I knew from high school who were in college, they were there. That just was weird. I just I, I got to quit this union job. I got to go into business. So I quit that job. For the girls. It was a woman that motivated yes, you. Yes, yes. <laughs> she motivated me. Uh, and then I, I went to um, I went to get a job at a bank. And I ended up working at a bank. So I learned how to count money. I learned how bank fraud works. Uh, and then I did all of operations. I was a teller. I was a vault teller. I did customer service. I did uh, certificates of deposit. And this was around the 80s when inflation was crazy and and Carter was trying to fix wages and price freeze and 
coffee was too expensive and everybody started buying gold and mm -hmm. wearing gold chains and wearing Krugerrand rings from South Africa to show off that, you know, I'm making it through this, I'm doing it. So there was a different, a whole different class of people again. Now I'm working in a bank downtown at the main office in this skyscraper. And I still remember this kid worked for one of the accounting firms, Price, Price Waterhouse, and he would always come to my window. And he's wearing this slick suit. And he's one of those dudes who polished his fingernails. Ooh. And he would put his check in front of me. So I knew how much money he made. Oh, wow. And he made more in two weeks than I made in like three months. Wow. So there I was, you know, worker. <laughs> and actually, at your previous job, when you were a union man, you were yeah. you were working with a diverse group of people. Was it all black guys? Yeah. Or okay, yeah. It was, so it was, I, I grew up in my neighborhood was black and Japanese. I I went to the famous uh, Holiday Bowl, uh, is famous on Crenshaw Boulevard, uh, where it's owned by Japanese police. They had a sushi bar there, and um, they had bowling night and. I made a lot of friends while I was working at Fedco who were Japanese and I was kind of a motorhead. I didn't have, I didn't have a car though, but I would go to the drag races. Uh, so there were a lot of Japanese managers. Uh, there were a couple white managers there. Um, and you get to know the management side and you get to know the union side and it's like forced conflict all the time. Everybody's okay. trying to get away with whatever they can get away with. Um, so I, you know, I, I hung out there. I made my probation. I got in the union, but I would have gone to the warehouse and started making the full union scale. But I was like, no, nah, I don't want to do this. I don't want to, I don't want to be associated with that. I got to do the white collar thing. Maybe this is jumping through a bit of time, but I want to know how does, a guy who's raised by a black nationalist eventually become a fiscal conservative. What caused you to make that leap? And when, how, how far after, how old were you when this happened? Were I you worked my way through college. Four years out of high school, I got into college. I went to state college, Okay. studied computer science, started reading. I'm like, all right, I'm going to do this technical stuff. Who should I read? Oh, Thomas Sowell. Who's that guy? So I started reading Thomas Sowell and I read like my three favorite intellectuals in college while I'm studying computer science. I'm not have to supposed to have intellectuals, but I'm like, I got to understand this other stuff. I got to do all the college stuff that I didn't get to do. Yeah. Eugene O'Neill, who's a socialist, Thomas Sowell, uh, Yukio Mishima. I read Mishima's poetry and, and studied his life. And uh, of course, I studied, you know, Alan Turing and Gerd Lescher Bach. I'm one of those people who read it, pretended like I understood what it meant, but I didn't. <laughs> but but uh, I, I got into the idea that machines could be intelligent. Uh, there was a book called The Mind's Eye. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I definitely followed a guy named uh, Hofstetter. I, I had these intellectual heroes. And it was important to me because I knew what a difference it would make in terms of my ambition. I'm like, I could just be here and get a degree, but now I know that I can learn this stuff. There's people behind everything. 
I can find out what those people think. I can know what they think. And I read a book called Ethnic America by Thomas Sowell. And I was like, I get it. I get mm -hmm. it. I didn't understand business. I didn't understand society. I understood all the black stuff. I understood all the talented tent stuff, what was expected. But I didn't understand how that was connected to the rest of America. And when I read Ethnic America by Thomas Sowell, I said, oh, yes, there were Irish that came into New York City, and they lived in the Irish place, and they sent their best folks out, and they integrated slowly but surely, and then they moved up. And then a next, a next set of immigrants came in behind them, and another set of immigrants came in behind them. So when I finally you know, moved to Brooklyn after the L.A. riots, I was like talking to people and I said, oh, I remember when Jews didn't live on that side of the street and then they could live on that side of the street. Mm -hmm. And so I took a picture of myself and my girlfriend at the time and I dressed like like Peaky Blinders. Like I was <laughs> I was one of those immigrants and I was spiffing up and I, I had the little hat and I just felt that I felt I like I, I have seen the other side. Now I understand, you know, maybe this takes generations. And my generation's destiny is not to work for the state or the county and get people in. My destiny is, is corporate America. And I'm going to be in corporate America. And I'm going to understand that. And, and I, I had an internship. My dad got me an internship at the county. And that was my first job where I was using a computer. And I was sitting in meetings around the table. And we're talking about, well, this is what we're going to do. We're going to have a, a state-managed health care plan for the medically indigent. So people who come across the border and they can't afford any health, we're going to put uh, health care centers that they can go to. And Mike, you're going to build the spreadsheet. We're going to teach you how to do spreadsheets. And you're going to build the system that will register all these people so we can give them health services. And that's when I was like, bing, it connected in my head. Oh, my place is to use my brains to help people. The ordinary people that I know are not all ghetto. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so I saw my place in that. And that's kind of how I became a progressive. But I still knew what the Talented Tenth was like. I knew what it was like to be with the union black folks and the prep school black folks, the elite black folks, um, and, and, and the, the political background of the movement of all those same people. Like it was the same cadre of black political leaders in LA, in LA County, who were doing all those things. And then we were connected in, in various ways to those folks. That arrow, arrow was in your late 20s, early 30s? My mid twenties. Your mid twenties, and so then, yeah. how how old were you when you moved to New York? I was thirty. I just turned thirty when I moved to New York. Okay. But back back step one thing, which was very important, is when I got into college, I I felt talented tenth. I got on the student advisory council. Now I'm four years older than all the rest of the students. Right. I got on the student account um, student representative to the board of the minority engineering program. So I had to do a little bonehead math because I hadn't done algebra since high school. 
So I went through that program. I got myself up to speed. And then I joined the National Society of Black Engineers that I didn't know existed before then. I pledged Alpha Phi Alpha that I didn't know existed before then. And so I did all this college stuff. So I was Joe College, but also on the organizational side to help people up. I was doing the networking towards corporate America. And, and we were the first generation of black undergrads where there were more black undergrads in what we call predominantly white colleges than the HBCUs. Mm, okay. So I'm like, okay, we are the crossover generation. Yeah. And, and, and that was my experience. So I was like, yes, we are integrating America at a higher level than ever before. So that makes me progressive. It gave me a lot of progressive allies politically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like we're behind the affirmative action. We're behind these special programs for you. We're going to help you do this. And so I became a national finance officer for Nesby. And I saw the split in two. So we had people 4.0 GPAs who were like brilliant. And so I had to write the solicitation letter to get money for our organization. And I learned there were two kinds of folks. There were folks that says, oh, yes, you're the best and brightest. We're going to get you all the way to the top. And then there were some that were like, oh, you poor, pathetic, sorry, black people. We're going to help you get through college because we know it's so hard for you. Mm. And I got money from both sides. So I saw that. And then I saw even within our organization, the divide on who's, how the money should be spent. And so the idea of black unity died for me when I went to college because I learned in practical ways, it just doesn't happen. Too many black folks who own themselves and they won't be dictated to. We're going to do it this way. No, we're going to do it this way. That's what broke up the the talented tent thing for me. Okay, and so you you finish up with college, you work the job that your dad set up for you where you were using a computer, mm-hmm. and then eventually you find yourself in New York. What was your social or political engagement like once you were in New York? Sure. So what happened when I when I finished my 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 schooling, I had gotten three internships with Xerox. So I worked in Xerox El Segundo. I got an apartment on the beach. I got a BMW, got a bike, got the bike rack, played beach volleyball. I had the perfect yuppie life. Went to pool parties all the time. Went to uh, the big, we had we had a beach party that we had at, at, at starting at my place. So yeah, you can imagine it's 1988 and we have a hundred black folks on the beach in this wealthy community mm-hmm. playing volleyball. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody had seen that anything, anything uh, like that beach volleyball in 1988, hundred black folks. Uh, so we did that. And, you know, I was just like, okay, I get it. I get it. And pretty much everybody among my, my, in the geographically desirable zip codes, and all the all the um, the elite kids that I that I knew from high school were all back together now. We're all professionals. I says, "Okay, I've done that. Am I happy with this?" Hmm. My roommate, who has family in in Dominican Republic, would go every year 
to Caracas for uh, Carnival. Mm-hmm. And he would bring back soca tapes. So I suddenly just got tired of the New Jack Swing. And I got into the reggae and the soca. And I'm like, oh, what are the black folks like in Jamaica? What are the black folks like in, you know, these other places in Haiti uh, and in South America? And I just got sick of hanging out with the same yuppie people. Broke up with my girlfriend, started hanging out with the dreads, started looking at political correctness, started looking at the the other radical side, the radical blacks, who was like, I would never press my hair. That's not Afrocentric. So I hung out with the Afrocentrics, and then I went to New York, um, moved to Brooklyn. I knew somebody. Uh, I was playing. I, I, I Literally, I was playing both sides because I knew a guy who owned a building. And he said, oh, I'll let you, I'll let you uh, sublet on my top floor. So I got this kick-ass apartment in a brownstone in, in Brooklyn, two bedrooms, hardwood floors, eating Ooh. kitchen, exposed brick. I could look out and see Manhattan uh, from, my, from my windows. And I had access to the deck on the roof. So I was like making it. I was this kind of unbelievable black man. I'm 30 years old, thought I was pretty good looking. And it was like people didn't believe I existed. And so I'm I'm there. And I understand that black unity doesn't work, but I want to be on the cutting edge. So you, you might have remembered Spin Magazine, which is a new magazine at the time. A friend of mine wanted to do a new black fashion magazine. So we were kind of like, I was making friends with wealthy Africans and their kids in the U.S. And some friends like at the biggest black marketing firm in New York City. And then I was hanging out with the guerrilla poets because I had done the guerrilla poetry kind of thing. So I had, I had my hair in a high top fade with the prince curls in it. And I was wearing, you know, jerbodes and I, I was a fancy schmancy guy, uh, just just having fun. But and partying with, you know, Spike Lee in Fort Greene. And I was just, you know, I was like, I've made it. I'm unleashed. I can do whatever I want to do. Uh, and it was. It was I was asking still the intellectual questions. And at some point, I kept realizing that I keep getting pointed left. Like Lenora Fulani was this radical and she was running for mayor. She ran for mayor in New York City like every four years and she'd never get anywhere. And then I had crossed paths with the Hoteps and mm-hmm. the Afrocentrics and they're talking about the wonders of Africa. And I'm like, my uncle's been in Africa. It's not all this Hotep shit. Right. <laughs> And so I was, and I also had started researching my family tree because I knew there were cobs who lived up in Harlem and I was learning about my family. And then I realized even my whole family didn't want to be forthcoming with what they're all about. And so I'm trying to keep some kind of black mentality while I realize I'm becoming a rarer and rarer commodity. 
And I'm like renegotiating my position with Black America. Mm. I'm like, people don't ex- people don't even believe I exist. All right, I'm 30 years old. I'm single. I dress nice, but I'm not gay. I don't have <laughs> babies out of wedlock. When you say right? people, do you mean everybody? Black people, white people, anybody? Just certain classes Black of people? people? White people. I mean, the dating scene was horrible because I I can't get a date with ordinary black women because they just don't believe me. Right? Like I, I, I have, I have a brownstone in Park Slope. No, you don't. Mm, like, well, wow. come on over. I'm not going to come to your house, Negro. Right. So there, the, I, the, I just, there was, there was this kind of paranoid scene and I just kind of felt I was on the outside of it. Mm. It was weird because even when I did the poetry slam thing, I got to a negative slam. They said, do your worst poetry. So I did poetry that I thought was bad and they thought it was great. Yeah. So it was really weird, not fitting in. I was trying. There were were authors and writers that I related to and I was always doing that. I was always trying to connect with, you know, the, the sharpest minds of black America that I could relate to and try that. And uh, I got a lot of places. I really did. I learned a lot of things. I met a lot of people. But ultimately, it was, you know, just me. I was I was a goddamn individual. Yeah. And uh, it was it wasn't easy. Uh, But it wasn't until I read a book called Dry Longso by a guy named Gwaltney, who was actually blind. And he had done interviews in the mid 60s and late 60s of all kinds of black folks from all walks of life. And while I believe there was no such thing as black unity, reading that book made me know that there was no need for black leaders, that people were doing exactly what they wanted to do. And they were actually being, they they would give a lot of lip service to the struggle, you know, in quotes, and to the black people and to my people and the community. And we, I was all about, you know, that community doesn't exist. There's multiple communities. And what you think about LA is not what LA is. And what I thought about New York is not what New York is. And Brooklyn was, you know, very blue collar. And I said, where are the rich folks live? Oh, they're out on Long Island. So it wasn't even a mixed black community in Brooklyn. And, and I taught at a Saturday school in Harlem, and they didn't know what Manhattan was like. And people were just very boxed in. I felt unleashed, and I enjoyed that. But it's very weird when I start, I think I started to understand why people pick up on a narrative. Because it takes a certain kind of courage to just be out there and cross boundaries. Mm. And I was forced to do it because I had to do my own road, but yeah. Were you ever a card-carrying member of the Republican Party? Do I remember that correctly? Yes. You were. Yes. Did, this, did this happen there in New York? Did this no, start to happen? No, this happened in 2000, uh, in 2000. So in 2000, by that fast forward, I got married. I got three kids. You met your wife in New York? I met my, I broke up with my wife in 88 when I left LA. Oh, she's the one. Okay. Okay. Well, I met her in 88. I broke up with her in 91. Okay. 
Okay. So she 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 wasn't with the, she she was she wasn't with the funky dreads. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, how how did you reconnect with her? Uh, she gave me an ultimatum. Okay. So when I, I I was living in Boston, and she said I just got an offer to work at Microsoft, doing you know she does food and restaurant management. Was Boston the f- next hop after New York? Yes. Okay. Boston was the next hop after after Brooklyn, and she said. Uh, Maybe you should join me. I mean, if we're ever, because we stayed friends, we stayed in touch. It was like a six year gap or something. That's a long time. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, we got married in in, uh, 94. And then we moved to uh, Atlanta in 95. And she worked at the games there. Uh, And then in 2000, we, we moved back to LA in 97. Uh, and then 2000, she got an offer to work in Sydney. So I'm at Sydney. I'm a professional. I got three young kids. I go and I watch the track and field. And I see when the American um, 4x100 team wrapped themselves in the flag, uh-huh. Mo Green and those guys, uh-huh. and the whole stadium boos. Ooh. And I'm like, these guys are the best in the world. This is their moment as black men to show a wait, little so pride. Wait, wait, just a second. So t- 2000, Sydney, you're watching the Olympics? Yes. Live. Live. Wow. Okay. That's, 2000 was the first Olympics that I was old enough to really pay attention, you know, to know. So that's that's really cool. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I was there. And I'm like, what is it that makes people think that black men should not be proud of being an American. They've achieved mm-hmm. far beyond what most people ever achieve. Right. And they just say, glory and honor to God in my country. And they get booed. And I'm like, something's wrong. Something's wrong here. Why, why do people, why do people feel like blacks have to hate America? And I'd gone through the thing. I'd gone through, um, I read, uh, even before I went to Brooklyn, I, I read Cornell West, American Invasion of Philosophy. And I read Emerson. And I said, Ralph Waldo Emerson kind of encapsulates everything I believe about the best of America. And I understand that. And so now all of this Afrocentricity and this idea that black men can't be free in America, that killed that idea. I'm like, I don't have to go to Africa to to learn something new. Mm-hmm. And I was I was, you know, into Japanese culture uh, a little bit. I mean, I studied I studied the Tao and I had the, you know, the same James Clavell Shogun fantasy as as all American men did. But I was philosophically I'm an American. And I, you know, even when the white supremacist senator from South Carolina was in the Senate. He didn't frighten me. I, I, I wasn't afraid of that. I was like, yeah, there's racists in America. So what? They, they get a vote too. They get represented in Congress too. I'm not afraid of, of, of that guy. I can't even remember his name anymore. But I was like, why are you so afraid? Why, why are you afraid? And I was like, I realized that the black nationalist and the black consciousness stuff for me worked all the time. 
So I was never self-conscious. I didn't have that dual consciousness. I never felt less than anybody as a black man. Mm -hmm. And I had my whole family around me and, and I'd gone, you know, all these places and I just, I just never felt inferior. You, you couldn't, you could call me nigger, but I, I could never stand for that. Yeah. I just, it just doesn't hurt me. It bounces off me. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, so, so that, that's why I guess there's some psychological attraction. If you're missing something, why you would go for the Afrocentric. Cause you'd feel like you have to be superior. Mm-hmm. You feel like you have something to prove. It's a psychological thing. It's a mental health issue that a lot of black Americans don't get so that they can be comfortable in their own skin, in their own soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm like, if you don't get that from, from the church, how are you going to get it? You'll always be, you'll always be a sucker for these hucksters who are telling you what blackness is supposed to mean. Mm-hmm. And you'll find out that there's no one black agenda. And then you'll feel comfortable with the black that you are like, like the Isley brothers, that song, you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with, mm-hmm. make yourself useful, do something where you are. And there's still this existential hunger that people have. But like they always have to be affirmed. They always have to be respected. They, they're too fragile. And, and I think that's, that's what we're dealing with today, that these people will, will fall for anything. Was that part of what you were realizing when you experienced the booing in Sydney? Well, I said, what was wrong and why, why can't black people be anything they want to be? Why can't they be conservative? And, and they said, well, the conservatives, they just want to kill us all. Who's, who said that? Who told you that? Everybody's, everybody's oh, you're just saying that. society, culturally. Yeah. Yeah. Culturally, yeah. It's like, oh, you must hate yourself because you're black. I'm like, I can't hate myself because I'm black. Yeah. I can do anything I want because I'm black, because I'm literally unleashed. Like Shaka Khan saying, I'm every woman. It's all in me. I'm every black man I ever needed to be. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not trying to be anything other than what I am. I'm being true to myself. And so I had a conversation with my dad's best friend, who was a doctor, Dr. Lou. And he says, you know, the Americans didn't respect the Japanese until the Japanese fought back. And, and I was like, that clicked something. I said, you know, I should try. I should try to be a, a black Republican, because whatever politics is and whatever people are trying to get from politics, we should get backsheesh from both sides. We should get kickbacks. We should be on the inside on both sides. Because I know a lot of black people who say they're conservative, but they're afraid to be conservative publicly. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, one of my best friends got an award from the Bush White House. And he doesn't even want to hang it up on his wall because people said George Bush. And I just started to realize what people feel like they need in their identity that they get from politics. And it's a kind of wish fulfillment. Mm -hmm. Like my, my team is winning. It's Mm -hmm. like, it's like being a a Cowboys fan or, or a Patriots fan. I said, you know what? I should make a black Republican thing. But I knew it had already been done. And I'd been online writing for some time. And I said, I'm going to do a black conservative 
Because I've heard all of these other arguments about black capitalism, about recycling black dollars, about black dignity. It was like no conversation of that in the black left that I haven't already had over the years. And so I said, oh, I'll start talking to the black uh, right. So I, I talked to um, a guy named Christopher. These names are escaping me right now, but I knew there was a guy in California who had done some stuff. Uh, there was Project 21. There was a guy, a journalist named Michael King. And I just came out from being, you know, a, a person of note in the black internet. And I said, I am going to do the conservative side. And there was a number of things that led me to it. But I think the most significant thing that led me to it was finally reading the Gulag Archipelago. Mm. Finally reading a book. Uh, called Coba the Dread about Stalin. Because my whole life, I thought when conservatives says communism is this bad thing, I said, American racism is way worse than communism. You have no idea what you're talking about. And then I didn't have any idea what I was talking about. <laughs> so I listened to um, Eric Foner, who was the acknowledged um, American expert on slavery, say that over the whole period of time that they kept records, there are only about 5,000 lynchings in America. 5,000. And, and I think back on every time I said, well, we do this because this is the dreams of our forefathers who sacrificed so much so we could be free, right? And 5,000 people is nothing. I mean, it's not nothing, Yeah. but when I read that Stalin was having 20,000 people killed every week, right? my mind was blown. Mm -hmm. I was like, I had no idea. And that came to me about the same time that Enron collapsed. So Enron, 20,000 people lost their jobs and the whole country is freaking out, mm -hmm. right? I said, this dude killed 20,000 people and kept doing it yeah. for years. I, I I just like, how did I not know this? How did I not know anything about anti-communism in America? And I realized that I was just sitting in this liberal place and I I was, I didn't bother to, 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 to read anything else or inform myself any other way. And so I said, I, I'm, I got to do this. I got to find out what this Republican thing is. And as soon as I said it out loud, people said, oh, you're making excuses for Phyllis Shafley. And I'm like, who? Oh, you're trying to be white. I'm, I'm what? Hmm. Oh, you're trying to fit in with. And I started to realize that. And this all happened at the same time when I was an independent contractor and I could bill like $100 an hour. Mm -hmm. And so... I would have to like say, cut me a small check so I don't have to report it to the feds because mm. every $10,000 you put in the bank, you have to report to the feds. So I'm like, cut me off at 9,000. So I recognized within a year that I was on the other side. Oh, okay. That I was the rich guy, that I was the Republican, that I was the one who was talking this other stuff. And it was like unapologetic and fearless and 
it started to make sense with my 9-11 experience. So I became, you know, one of those neoconservatives behind, behind the Bush war on terrorism. And I took that up and I made a blog league called the Conservative Brotherhood. And I just investigated the whole thing. And it took me a couple of years to realize I don't want to be a black Republican. I'll just be a black conservative. Mm -hmm. And then, and then after a while, I said, I don't even want to be a black conservative. I just want to be a conservative. Mm -hmm. This is because I came to understand the sentiments of the broad right of America. Mm -hmm. And it started way back when, you know, I was living in Atlanta and I listened to redneck right radio. Right. And it was funny. And that's the first time I heard that guy. And now, you know, the rest of the story, <laughs> because when I went to Georgia, I lived in Newt Gingrich's district, which guess what? That was Cobb County. Really? Wow. <laughs> so I'm living in Cobb County, not Fulton County, where all the brothers are. And I had people said, oh, your babies were born at Northside Hospital, not Fulton County Hospital. Oh, you must be better than us. The class consciousness of black people in Atlanta is very different than any place else. Hmm. It's like very class conscious, very class conscious. And so that was a weird thing to, 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 to deal with. But all those things, 2003, I launched Cobb, my blog. I'm, I'm going to take everything from a conservative thing, and I'm going to defend soul, and I'm going to talk about economics, and I'm going to talk about culture, I'm going to talk about politics, I'm going to talk about everything. And I did. And I got into uh, I got into it with folks who were talking about global white supremacy and how the white supremacists run everything. So I was kind of prepped for the woke mind virus when it came, because I've heard all the anti-black, well, you're not really black, or you're just currying favor with white folks, and you're really not thinking of what you're thinking. And I was like, I wish I'd have done this sooner. I wish I'd have hung out with more military folks sooner because they know stuff that you guys don't bother to know. Mm. And you, you think you can vote your way towards freedom. And no, it has a cost. So I learned a lot of lessons. I grew. And then I, I felt like, you know, I watched national politics and I just watched it devolve into identity politics. I mean, I think I was a genuine fiscal conservative. I liked uh, Romney, and I liked Richardson too, the, the 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 Democratic candidate. But after that, there just didn't seem to be any candidates that 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 rung true for me. And I was like, well, you know, I'm with the the, the IT revolution, so I'm going to be okay. I don't need this politics stuff. So it was a, a very interesting set of lessons that I learned. And I retain a lot of those those lessons today, but I don't I don't go in for the politics so much. You left the Republican Party, you left even the identity as a conservative, right? Because now you consider yourself a Stoic. Yes. Can you tell people what what that means? Stoic basically says the universe runs by a set of logical laws. And you can't wish your way out of those laws. So if you 
are searching for cosmic justice, or if you wish you had one superpower that could change the universe, you know, what would you do? And Stoics say your, your, your best strategy for life is to control yourself, is to possess yourself, is to understand that you have a certain limited set of responsibilities in this world, and you can't waste them reacting to everything everybody else does. All right. And so when people defy the laws of the universe and they say, well, maybe if I take LSD, I can fly. You have to, you have to not let that hurt you. So I, I look at stoicism in terms of how do I get away from the madness of the world? And I'm not going to look left. I'm not going to look right. I'm not even going to look around me. I'm going to look to history. And I'm going to look to the foundations of Western civilization. And what are we losing uh, in, in, our, in our current society? Uh, so I'm very sensitive to what we're losing in our society, uh, where families are, are not being centered, where people mm-hmm. don't have enough middle names and understand and meet those relatives who have those middle names mm. so that whatever comes on TV, oh yeah, that's me. Yeah. And then this postmodern idea of what black is can become anything because it's on TV. And I can encapsulate everything you are by saying black lives matter, you can't disagree with me. Or or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Right? And there's just this series of advertisements and marketing that goes at people, a lot of it, you know, controlled by computers, that that they just accept. And and they don't take the time to discipline themselves and ingest, uh, you know, the wisdom that's out there. So I had been what I considered successful in my personal life, in my family life, my 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 professional life. And so I'm like, what should I do? I should try to be wise. Mm-hmm. I should try to make sense of all these lessons that I've learned because I was stupid enough or bold enough to just go there. When, when, when Lo- Los Angeles had the riots, I was sick of LA before the riots happened. I was walking around with a video camera trying to catch police in the act. Mm-hmm. And all I ever found was them saving people after car wrecks or doing a charity basketball game. You know, I said, oh, there's four police cars. They're all going. I got to follow them. And they're going to a charity basketball game. <laughs> and so it's like I'm I, I, I'm and, and like an engineer. I'm debunking myths all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of Americans believe a lot of myths about themselves and they don't even learn what the country's about and who their actual neighbors are and what other people actually do in life. I had to do that, and I I learned that so much of the talk around race is self-serving. People are just making excuses, and it just becomes ingrained in the way they think. I mean, there's lots of reasons, but after I read Gwaltney, I said, I do not second-guess black people. I'm not going to second-guess black people. I have nothing to offer except (laughs) my own lived experience. But but I'm I, I'm doing it above ground. 
Mm -hmm. I'm doing it as a writer in public. So you can make comments and I have to respond to the comments and I have to make sure my arguments hold water. And as a stoic, I can observe what's going on because I had, I had withdrawal. I had political withdrawal. I'm like, how do I engage the public if I'm not going for a candidate or if I'm not going for a policy change? I care about the quality of life, of intellectual life in America as a writer. And I can do that. I've proved that I could get 10 black conservative bloggers in one, in one place and, and build something out of that. What, what's going wrong? How can we fix it? And I, I, and I realized that it's not an ideological thing. It, it has to be philosophical. You have to reconcile everything you learn with everything you know and be logically consistent as much as you can. You have to have a praxis. You have to have a willingness to do things in the here and now according to the best things that you know. And scientists do this and devout people do this. They say, I may never understand the universe, but everything that I do understand, I'm not going to question that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to defy the logic that I've learned. Mm. And I will accept any and all questions because here's where I stand. Here's my position on this. This is what I believe to be true. And I will work hard to find the facts. And if you can correct me, please do. Correct me if I'm wrong. That's kind of where you start off. You say, correct me if I'm wrong. And then you go and you do sense making. And I've lived that my entire life because I never got a chance to skate long enough so that I could just just follow the program and get along. So I got, I got into USC when I'm 16 years old, a year ahead of time, a year and several months ahead of time. Electrical engineering, tough program. And I skated for like six months and then I was out. Oh, now I got to learn how to do this. Now I have to learn how to do banking. Now I have to learn how to go to college again, four years older than everybody else. First day in college, I went with a briefcase and a tie on. <laughs> In Psych 101. And everybody looked at me like, whoa, what's his problem? Uh, and and then I then I then I had to learn, well, what what is the black professional life like? All right, you did that. What's next? And I just realized I get thinner and thinner in terms of the company I have around me. Now I have to be a writer and write to large audiences that I may never meet. I have to invite people into my life into my thinking life. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm willing to do that in public. I got over the stage fright being, being a performance poet. I actually learned something there. So like, okay, now I don't, now I just say what I say and I own myself and I own my word. So how did that, how did that mentality lead to you co-founding Free Black Thought? As a stoic, I said, how do I, how do I engage the public I had seen the uh, controversy. I'm, I'm watching Joe Rogan. I'm a, a big MMA fan, and I watched Joe Rogan for that. And that was part of me learning. I, I did something called my martial education. So while I started uh, doing the conservative thing, I learned everything that I know now about firearms. Because I started hanging out with first responders, Boy Scouts, 
I went to uh, CERT classes for emergency response, I hung out with EMTs and firefighters. Then I went to a, a Citizens Police Academy and learned everything about all the various departments. And then I took it one more step and I, I joined the FBI Citizens Academy. So I learned about how the FBI operates and they share that, you know, with the public if, if you want to go. And so I learned how to think about the public in a different way. I literally got in shape and I said, what is the purpose of my body? And then these people told me, you might want to sacrifice your body to save somebody else's life. And that's what we do. So you're a little bit too old to join the club, but at least you can understand what we do. To get to Free Black Thought, I had already figured out that I can engage the public without being political, without being ideological. And then I watched the Joe Rogan podcast where he had Brett Weinstein and Jordan Peterson on it. And they talked about what happened at Evergreen College. Yeah. My home state. And I said, I said, what? Is this what's happening to colleges nowadays? Is it that bad? I mean, I'm I'm a computer scientist. Everything I have to do has to be logical, or the machine won't accept it. The compiler will say, nah, sorry, bad code. And then and then I have to maintain that code over the years for my customers. Or else the computer does stupid things or it just breaks. I have to be logical. And I have to use deductive and inductive reasoning to make sure that I'm doing something that's actually value to my customers. And I have that in common with first responders, with cops, with firemen, with EMT, with FBI agents, with Boy Scout troop, troop leaders. All right. These are real men and women who do a real service that you cannot ignore. And it's not political. It's engaging in the real physical world. And you can't do that without a certain set of knowledge where you hold facts that are clear and you take responsibility for that knowledge. And you can't listen to the airwaves and see what the polls are saying. And you can't listen to the Republicans and, and see what you know Tucker Carlson is saying or anybody. You have to know. You have to train. You have to practice. And you have to get better. Because if you don't get better, people die. And if you don't share the mistakes that you made, the next person will make the same mistake and people will die. You know, when you're when you're a father, you understand that. You understand that when you when your daughter jumps off the diving board, she better know what she's doing. Mm -hmm. I better be telling her the truth. So these habits, you know, over the years. You you have to live with them and you have to live out the consequences of, of them. And so if I said colleges are going that wrong, then there's something deeply wrong in America. Mm -hmm. And they're just not being reasonable. They're just not being logical. They are not using their minds in a constructive fashion. So I'm out here. I want to save rationality. So there's a couple groups that are big, that are well-known, and I had read them in the blogosphere. One of them is less, called Less Wrong. Uh, and and uh, that's uh, by a guy named Robin Hansen. And, and uh, then there's another one, Star Codex. Um, now it's called Astral Codex 10. 
And, you know, as a writer, as a blogger, I've been following a lot of smart people uh, for, for, for many years, and they influence my writing and my thinking. And when I see that there are people, other people that realize that American life is not as rational as it could be, I wanted to make common cause with those people. Mm -hmm. And with everything that I know, having been the son of a radical who wants to leave America because he can't believe that black people can be successful in America and we have to go our own way. Mm -hmm. I know how wrong that is. I know how wrong the Hoteps and the Afrocentrics have been. I know how wrong the people who the talented 10th that think they can aggregate all the black leadership and have one direction for one black people. I know they're wrong. I know the people who want to do um, to make hip hop into the singular art form that expresses everything about blackness. I know how they're wrong, right? I know how everybody who has some kind of interest in race something, you know, how they think they can program black people right, I know how they're wrong. And I see how it works in politics, and I see how it works in society. And I, 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 I can see this stuff. It's transparent to me now because I've been part of the other side trying to do that. And I realize how blind you can be to everything because you don't try the other side. Yeah. I've been a liberal my whole life. I've been a progressive my whole life. And I didn't even understand in the world context what communism was versus racism. So Free Black Thought, I was like, yeah, I can do this. I had sold my company. I had a little money. I said I can help out. I can try to do something to help people understand something that I learned in college, which is that there's no single one black community. Mm -hmm. And there's no ring, no magical ring to unite them all. And you have to let people do what they need to do and learn things the hard way, even if they do. And you can't call them out to be special victims or special examples of, of, of anything. Because if you really looked and if you really asked, you would find that people are doing exactly what they want to do. They're doing what they think they can get away with. And not all of them are curious to expand or to, to roll with the punches or accept change. People like to believe they have all the answers and all the answers they need. And people don't realize how that limits them as, as individual people. They, they fake it until they make it. And then when they make it, they wonder why they're not happy. I've, I've, I've had to go through too many things in life to learn. I've learned so many lessons. I've made so many foolish mistakes and I've had luck play, play a bigger role in my life than I ever thought possible. And I, but I know that you have to think your way through it. Mm -hmm. And I know you have to be consistent in your thinking and you have to be willing to fail and you have to be willing to try. And that's something that nobody can give you. I mean, I can climb the top of a mountain and I can take a 4K high resolution double stereo image and I can give that to you. But that will not put you on the top of that mountain. Right. You have to go. 
you have to go there. And so I'm trying to be wise because I've succeeded past my ambition. And I'm trying to give in a way that is not tied to an ideology. I want to be as free as a church you can just walk into and hear the word and then walk out yeah, and be blessed all the same. Mm-hmm. And I think of all the things where everybody's giving you a litmus test. Oh, you're wearing a red MAGA cap. I shouldn't have to listen to anything you say. Or if you want to be in this organization, you have to pass these seven qualifications, blah, 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 blah. And nobody is just being out and open. Everybody's afraid of being a public intellectual. And I'm like, well, I'm not famous enough to be canceled, (laughs) but I was good enough to be on NPR. Yeah. And they had me up there for a little while. And I'm good enough to have been called Black Blogger of the Year. And I'm good enough to be published some places. And so I'll just do what I can do. And I think people need to hear someone with the patience to explain it. Because what happens on social media and what happens in all kinds of media is the experts don't have time to deal with the ordinary people. And that's like me as the electrical engineering freshman. I don't have time to be with these union workers or that girl on the dance floor. Mm -hmm. Didn't have time to be with me. Right. And so they just seal themselves up in their safe little bubbles and, and they don't explore. So my three key words are discovery, humor, and reason. Yeah. And if you can't discover, then you're not going to learn anything. You're never going to grow. If you can't take a joke, if you can't make fun of yourself, you think you're that important, you're not going to make it. And if you're not using reason, you know, uh, you'll, you'll fall for anything because you won't stand for anything. You won't know. You think you know. You think you know stuff, but you don't understand. And a lot of people are trying TLDR their way through life. They're looking for cheat codes. You have to get through it. You can't get around it. You have to get through it. You have to deal with problems head on. Because one day, you know, your mother's going to have a stroke and you're going to have to get her to the hospital because she says, my, my hand feels funny. I don't know what's going on here. And you have to man up and do the right thing. And you can't be helpless. Life cannot let you be helpless. So if you think you're being helpless, you, you can't. You can't just hope things get better. You can't just hope this person is going to take care of everything. No, you got to do it. So free black thought for me is an extension of my defense of the rationality of of Western civilization. It's sharing culture. It's sharing ideas. It's saying that individuals matter. And it's especially needed to know that black individuals matter. And that's the only reason I could sit here and talk about myself for this time because you know that I'm just not every black man. Mm-hmm. I'm not the average black man. I can't tell you how many people says, well, but if you got pulled over by the police and shot tomorrow, then you'll know I right. Well, as long as I'm not shot, after I'm dead, you can say anything you want. But I'm here and I'm alive and I'm not going to shut up. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to tell the truth. And you don't have to deal with it. 
but you have to know that somebody has lived it, proved it, thought about it, fixed it when it was broken, and come back and tried it to make it consistent. And and that means sometimes you have to throw a, throw away a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. You have to throw away a lot of stuff and stand on a very thin plank, which is like one foot. <laughs> yeah, you have to balance. You have to think on your feet, and sometimes you only have one foot, and that's sometimes at the foot at the bottom of the bad knee, but it's your knee. Mm-hmm. It's your foot, and it's that's the only way you can stand for anything. Yeah. So that's why I love the people and the mission of Free Black Thought, because we're all different, but we know how to deal with reality in a practical way, and we're ready to share with everybody who wants to know. Because if you're going through life saying, is this all there is, then you're not, you're not doing discovery. And I hope you would discover us and discover what we have discovered. And uh, it's a good place to be. I'm very happy. Yeah. I'm very happy. Yeah, me too. So Mike, I wanted to get into all the technology stuff your programming background, AI, but we are creeping up on two hours. So that'll have to be part two. Next time you come on, we will discuss all those things. Right now, I want to hit you with our quick fire questions and then we'll do closing thoughts after that. Are you ready for the, for the quick fires? Hit me. All right. Number one, favorite cartoon movie. Well, it actually is the new Spider-Verse. Oh, I, I need- it's that good. Okay, great. It's better than the first one. And I loved, I loved the first one. So that means a lot if you're saying the second one's better. Okay, number two, MLK or Malcolm X? <sighs> MLK was braver. Is Rachel Dolezal a bad person or misunderstood? She's horribly misunderstood, misrepresented, and people ought to have her back. Should we tear down statues of slaveholders? No. Does pineapple go on pizza? Yes. What is the wildest conspiracy theory that you kind of believe is true? Panspermia, which means we're not the only humans, and the aliens that are visiting us are the original humans. Ooh. We're just a science project of those guys. Okay. What would your last meal be? It would be picnic food. I, I love some barbecue ribs, fried corn, potato salad, watermelon, barbecue chicken, hot links. Yeah, that'll fill me up. Best book you've read this year so far? The Fourth Man uh, by a guy named Bear, who's uh, ex-CIA. And it's uh, a, a detailed, decades-long survey, or not a survey, a, a history of finding... Russian moles within the CIA and they didn't find this guy and may still be there, but it's a fascinating story about how, how the intelligence business really works. And this next one, I feel like you kind of maybe already answered it, but what is your hottest take? Mm, Hottest take? I don't know. I, I, I think that all of these scandal TV shows and this is the one. I think it's it's called Jane is Awful. It's the first episode of the new season of Black Mirror. And my hot take is people who watch these dramas on TV and reality shows are very empty. Mm-hmm. And if they had their own lives as a reality show, 
they would realize how empty they are. And finally, are the best things in life really free? No, it takes work. It takes effort. You got through it. You got through the 10 quick fire questions. Before I give you the your your final chance to for final thoughts here, I do want to shout out a book that you're a part of, Red, White, and Black, Rescuing American History from Revisionist and Race Hustlers. There's a volume two, a sequel that's produced by the Woodson Center that you are going to be contributing to or you are contributing to an essay because it's, it's a series of essays, correct? Yeah. Um, so I just want folks to know that that's coming out this year. So if you want to read more of his thoughts about all these things, or not all these things, but some of these things that we've talked about today, be on the lookout for that book. And of course, Free Black Thought will be promoting it through our various avenues. If you forget about it, you won't be able to forget about it if you follow us because you'll get an email or see a tweet about it. But Mike Bowen, Michael David Cobb Bowen, what are your final thoughts, things you need to get off your chest before we close it out here? Life can be wonderful. I'm, I have three adult children, and they're some of the best people I know. I've been married almost 30 years, and you never know how what you do is going to affect somebody else for the positive, and you should never give up energy. You should want to live to be 100. And so I hope I can maintain my health enough to do what I'm what I'm doing for another 20 odd years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, there's a whole world to learn and discover and have a sense of humor and let reason be your guide. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And I'll see you on the next Free Black Thought email thread. You're listening to the Free Black Thought Podcast. Free Black Thought.